The scripture today will be from Romans 8, 18 through 25. Reads as follows, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Or who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray and then let's ask that God would bless our time together this morning. Lord, we are extraordinarily grateful for the opportunity to open the Word of God together. It is a tremendous privilege for us to be able to open your Word and to look at what your Word would have to teach us. And so we're praying now that you would speak loudly and clearly. Oh, it is my prayer that this would not be my words that are going forth, but rather that your Spirit would be at work through your Word today. Lord, would you please in your mercy and in your kindness, would you enable us to have ears to hear? And would you enable us to have eyes to see? And would you encourage us in the midst of what's been a difficult season? Would you remind us from your precious word that's more precious than gold or silver that we have not lost hope? And that in fact, we very much have a real hope that we can cling to. So Lord, would you please, in your mercy, be kind to us and speak now, speak through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. So three weeks ago, I presided over the graveside service for a one-month-old family in our church had lost a newborn son, and it was my job in some way to try to offer some measure of comfort and hope. As you might expect, it was as awful as it sounds. There's something entirely unnatural about preaching next to a tiny casket. And as if burying a one-month-old wasn't hard enough, COVID-19 restrictions made it so that not everyone who wanted to go to the graveside could. And even those that were able to go had to remain socially distanced. That's miserable. I mean, what kind of world are we living in where we have to bury infants and we can't even do so properly because of a global pandemic? How messed up is that? As I reflect back on that day, there's really only one thought that goes through my mind. The world that we live in is indeed broken. I'm guessing you already know that. Because here's the thing, the brokenness of this world is not confined to small cemeteries in Nebraska. It's everywhere. To one, degree or another, to one degree or another, suffering is a universal human experience. Whether you live in New York City, or whether you live in Fremont, Nebraska, or whether you live in rural Morocco, suffering and difficulty is a part of this life. And that suffering and difficulty comes in all shapes and sizes. Natural disasters destroy things. Stuff breaks relationships fall apart, people do awful things to one another, thorns and thistles invade everything, weather complicates things, work is hard, and people we love, they die. 
That's the world we live in. And so my question this afternoon is simply this. As Christians, what do we do with this brokenness? How do we make sense of it? How do we respond to it? How do we not give in to despair? Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you're religious or anti-religious, whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're male or female, whether you live in New York or you live in Nebraska, the reality is you cannot escape the brokenness of this world. There's no place to run and there is no place to hide. Brokenness will find you. Even if you were able to isolate yourself on a remote desert island and thus protect yourself from sinful interactions with other people, you would still experience suffering and difficulty. Whether it be the aches and pains of your own body or the danger that's inherited in nature nature, or wild swings of weather, brokenness would find you. So whether you like it or not, whether we want to acknowledge or not, you're going to have to deal with the reality of living in a broken world. Now, having said all that, I recognize that that's not exactly the most encouraging way to start a message. In fact, you might be asking yourself right now, why did we ask this guy to be our guest preacher today? What happened to him in Nebraska? Did all of the endless driving past cornfields turn him into a Midwestern version of Eeyore? If that's you, listen, I understand your concern for me. I understand your concern for where this message is going. I get it. And while I acknowledge that this is not exactly the most uplifting way to start a message, I want to make the argument this afternoon that it's necessary for us to be able to acknowledge the brokenness of the world that we live in. More importantly, I want to make the argument this afternoon that we as Christians are uniquely equipped to be able to handle the brokenness that we face. And here's why. Not only does the Bible plainly acknowledge the brokenness of the world, it also explains why our world is broken and it gives us real hope in the midst of our brokenness. And perhaps no chapter of the Bible does this better than the one that we're going to look at today, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, we're reminded that the world is in fact broken. We're also reminded that in the midst of that brokenness, there is in fact real hope. And so it's my prayer this afternoon that as we study Romans 8 together, we would leave today with a sense of the reality of the brokenness we face, but also being encouraged by the hope that we actually have. So again, let me read here from Romans 8, the passage that Tim read just a minute ago, but I think for the sake of of just reminding ourselves of this passage, it's worth reading again. Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. The Word of God says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now on to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And I hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the beauty of Romans 8, 18 to 25 is that it acknowledges the difficulty of our present world but it also encourages us with our future hope and inspires us to have a current response. And so actually, as I think that's the way the passage is laid out, that's how I want, to, that's how I want us to think about the passage today. To acknowledge, number one, the present difficulty that we faced, to see the future hope that awaits us, and then thirdly, to contemplate our current response. So let's deal with each of those one at a time here. Let's start by acknowledging our present reality. And that present reality is simply that the world is broken. 
The connection between Romans 8, 18 to 25, and what comes before it is a connection of suffering. In Romans 8, 8, 8, 17, Paul informed us that if we are God's children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. It's that theme of suffering which then launches into our passage today. Paul makes the connection in verse 18 by simply saying, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Now, let me be clear here. I think the latter half of verse 18 is one of the most encouraging and inspiring verses on suffering in all of the Bible. But I don't want us to be so quick to rush to the latter half about the glory that awaits that we miss the first half. We can't neglect the first half of verse 18 because the first half of verse 18 is very important. And it reminds us that there is, in fact, present suffering. Now, the extent of that suffering and the cause of the suffering is the focus of verses 19 to 23. Verses 19 to 23 help us to answer two questions. One, why is everything messed up in the world? And two, how bad is it messed up? Now, the short answer to those questions is this. Why is everything messed up in the world? Sin. How bad is it messed up? Really bad. Now, we could stop there and maybe that would be sufficient. But to do justice to Romans 8, maybe we should dive a little bit deeper into each of those questions. If our present reality is one of suffering and difficulty, which is what verse 18 teaches, and what we know from experience, in fact, the last month and a half has certainly reminded us that there is suffering in this world. If that's the reality we face, then the question of how this happened is an important one, or why it is that we have suffering is an important one too. In fact, for a lot of my non-believing friends, this is one of the questions that most trips them up. They wonder, if God is good, then why are there natural disasters? If God is good, then why is nature so violent? Or why do we get sick? Or why does stuff break? Or why is there death? Or why do we experience things like COVID-19? Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that we can give an exhaustive answer to all those questions, but I think verses 19 to 21 are a good starting point. So again, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to look to verses 19 to 21. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now the content of verses 20 and 21 is crucial to this discussion of why there's suffering in the world. Verse 20 tells us the creation is subjected to futility by someone. Verse 21 tells us the creation itself is in bondage to decay, which again prompts some more follow-up questions. Why? Would we be subjected to futility or who did this? And why is it that it's subject to decay? The answer to both those questions, I think, is actually found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So I'm going to ask you to hold on to your place in Romans 8 and flip back to Genesis 3 for just a minute here. So Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. This is a passage of scripture that you're probably familiar with, but I think there's no doubt it informs our passage today. Genesis 3, starting in verse 17. This is God speaking, he says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So according to that Genesis 3 passage, who is it that's subjecting the creation to futility? Well, the answer is God did as part of the curse of the fall. 
when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruits, sin entered the world. And one of the effects of sin entering the world is that creation is now in bondage to decay. So the reason why everything's messed up in a word is sin. Once sin entered the world, once that happened, nothing has ever been the same. From that point forward, things break. Work is hard. Frustration is everywhere. So the answer to the question of why is there suffering or why are we dealing with hard things even currently goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Sin ruined everything. And it didn't just kind of mess things up. It catastrophically messed things up. And we see the extent of its effects in verses 22 and 23. Now again, back to Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So again, if the question is, how bad did sin mess things up? The answer is really bad. And we see that in verses 22 and 23. In verse 22, we're told that creation itself is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. It's been subjected to futility and it longs for things to be made right again. So think about it this way. While we can admire the beauty and splendor of creation, even in its fallen state, we have to acknowledge that creation itself is broken and it's broken everywhere. When I went on my first mission trip to Taiwan several years ago now, we had a brief layover in Tokyo. I was excited to fly into Tokyo because I thought that maybe we'd get a glimpse of the city and I was hoping that that perhaps as we flew in, we'd be able to see all these amazing things. But to my recollection, at least, we didn't see much of the city at all. The airport was far enough from the city center that there wasn't much to see. In fact, the only thing I remember about flying into Tokyo is that there were giant weeds beside the runway. And the reason why I remember that so vividly is because I remember looking at those weeds and thinking of the words of a familiar Christmas song, Joy to the World. The third verse of that song, which you're probably familiar with, goes like this. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Now, I have no idea why I was thinking of a Christmas song in July in Tokyo. But when I saw the thorns and the thistles by the runway, I couldn't help but think the curse is everywhere. Indeed it is. Whether you live in a remote and underprivileged part of the world like Mozambique, Africa, or you live in a tropical paradise like Honolulu, Hawaii, the curse is everywhere. Every part of creation has been affected. Natural disasters are a threat. Weather is a problem for all people. Danger lurks in every corner, in every cranny of creation because all of it's been affected by the fall. And every corner and every cranny would include our bodies. As verse 23 reminds us, we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. One of the most personal and visible reminders we have of the effect of the fall is our own bodies. Our bodies are slowly decaying. I'll turn 40 here in a couple of months, which is super weird for me. I remember when my dad was 40 thinking that he probably grew up seeing dinosaurs. But here I am. I'll be the first to admit that the last few years have been tough and humbling for me body-wise. On at least five, maybe six occasions, I've tweaked or pulled some sort of muscle trying to participate in a sporting activity. Last summer, I was participating in slow-pitch softball. I'll say that again, slow-pitch softball. And as I rounded third base and tried to score, I got hit by the hamstring sniper. It was terrible. It took me at least a month to start feeling normal again. Whereas in my 20s, I could not warm up at all and sprint from place to place. Now that I'm nearing my 40s, I realize that I have to warm up a lot. And even if I do warm up, I still am only going to be able to go about 80 or 
What's even more humbling is that even sleep has become dangerous for me lately. On a few occasions, I've woken up and I've pulled some muscles or tweaked some muscles just trying to get out of bed. On many occasions, I wake up with a sore neck or sore back. I can't even sleep anymore without risk of injury. But here's the thing. I know I'm not alone in this. One of the things that's interesting to me about getting older, maybe depressing, is that guy bonding time now ends up being talking about injuries and pulled muscles and bad backs and sore necks. That's sad, but kind of predictable because sin ruined everything. From earthquakes to tsunamis, from disease to genetic abnormalities, from droughts to flood, animal attacks to beast things, sore backs to pulled hamstrings, cancer to ALS, all of it can be traced back to Genesis 3. Our present reality is one of suffering, which is a reality that Romans 8 does not shy away from. In fact, if anyone holds to the prosperity gospel, the idea that if you just believe in Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy, I would dare to suggest that they've not actually read the Bible, and they've certainly not actually read Romans 8. We live in a broken world. Our bodies are broken. Creation itself is broken. And that means that suffering is inevitable. It's part of the curse of the fall. And if we're going to, need, if we're going to move forward, we need to have enough courage to acknowledge that reality. But we also need to have enough wisdom to see that there is a future hope. Admittedly, if I stop the message here, this would not be a fun message. But there is more to the story. And in fact, that more to the story does change our perspective on everything. Not only do we have this present reality of suffering, but we also have a future hope. That's the second part that I want to focus on. And again, I'm going to ask us to turn back to Romans 8, verse 18. Verse 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I think it's a little humorous and strange when you see an advertisement on television for some sort of pharmaceutical medication. And I say humorous and strange primarily because the pharmaceutical companies are obviously required by law to reveal potential side effects. And so you get 30 seconds of the company talking about their product, product X lowers cholesterol, product Y gets rid of some skin ailment. And then you usually get about 10 to 15 seconds of potential side effects. In some patients, products X leads to nausea, itchy skin, severe bleeding from the eyes. In some cases, product Y has led to severe dry mouth, hair falling out, seizures, cardiac arrest. I always hear those commercials and think to myself, if those are the potential side effects, and I know they may be small, but if those are the potential side effects, this product must be amazing. And that way, I admire the audacity of the pharmaceutical companies. Essentially, what they're saying is, yeah, we know that this medicine could produce some pretty big problems, albeit small likely, but it could cause bleeding eyes or seizures or cardiac arrest or death. But we think the benefit of our product is so great, we're going to go ahead and promote it anyway. I admire their audacity. But as audacious as those commercials are, I would argue that verse 18 of Romans is even more audacious. To claim that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed, that is an exceptionally bold claim. And the reason why it's so bold is because our present sufferings are nothing to sneeze at. When we're talking about bodies that are ravaged by cancer, when we're talking about natural disasters that kill thousands or finances ruined by random acts of weather, when we're talking about death that comes all too early or pandemics that cause global havoc, these sufferings do not feel small or insignificant. So how can Paul have the boldness to say with a straight face, oh, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. The only potential explanation to that question is that the weight of future glory is so heavy that it outweighs our present sufferings. 
In other words, what is to come is so great that it makes our current troubles seem small in comparison. Now, in saying that, I recognize that some of you might have a really hard time believing that Romans 8.18 is true. Maybe your body has been betraying you for decades and you live in a constant state of pain and misery. Or maybe your finances are at the point where you feel desperate and hopeless. Maybe you've lost a loved one and you just can't seem to recover. Maybe a relationship that you were in fractured the seams. Maybe you've been abused or betrayed in the past. Maybe right now you feel lonely and hurt and depressed. Or to say it more simply, life just feels impossibly hard. So the idea of future glory being so heavy that it makes our present troubles seem small, that just seems incomprehensible to you. And if that's where you are this afternoon, I would just say this. First of all, we grieve with you in your pain. One of the things that the Christian church is to do is to weep with those who weep. And if you're in that situation, I grieve with you. And I know that your brothers and sisters in Christ and New Hope grieve with you as well. The fact is, life on this earth is just hard. As the book of Ecclesiastes makes clear, sometimes life in a world, in a fallen world, just plain stinks. No doubt, the suffering of this world is real and it's difficult. But actually, I think the genuine weight of our suffering here makes the claim of Romans 8.18 so precious. Paul is not saying in verse 18, your suffering is not that bad. Toughen up, buttercup. No, that's not what he's saying. That doesn't make any sense in the context of Romans 8, 18 to 25. Obviously, one of the points of the passage is that sin has catastrophically ruined everything and thus made everything difficult. So Paul is not minimizing our suffering in verse 18. What he is doing is trying to highlight the greatness of our future glory. In essence, what he's saying is this. Life on this world is difficult. Life in this world is difficult. Suffering is real. But what is to come surpasses that which we're dealing with and makes it seem small in comparison. To say it again, he's not minimizing suffering. What he's doing is highlighting the greatness of what's to come. And in that way, I would say this. For most of us, our difficulty in believing Romans 8.18 is not that we're overestimating our current suffering because our current suffering is hard. The problem is that we underestimate our future hope. We don't see how verse 18 is possible because we don't understand the greatness of what's to come. The truth is that when many of us think of that which is to come, we think of angels playing harps on a cloud in an eternally long church service. If that was the basis of our future hope, then verse 18 would seem like a total lie. How do angels playing harps on a cloud give us comfort in the midst of our present suffering? The answer is they don't, because that would be a weak future hope. But hear me, that's not our future hope. Our future hope is so much better than angels playing clouds or angels playing harps on clouds. And it's vital that you understand the nature of our hope. And in this passage, the nature of our hope is twofold. Again, I'm going to ask you to look at verses 19 to 22, and now look for the elements of hope here. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. When we talk about the glory of a new heaven and a new earth, that's not just theoretical language that we're using because we don't know what else to say. No, that's an actual description of what's to come. That God is going to make all things new. That everything that's undone will, by sin will be made right. Our future home is not in the clouds playing harps. Our future home is here in the new creation. When Jesus comes again, he will renew creation and he will undo everything that's been broken. Creation will be restored to its original glory before it is marred by sin. 
And thus our hope is in a world to come that's untainted by sin and untouched by the effects of the fall. Our hope is in a world where there is no cancer. Our hope is in the world where there are no deadly pandemics. Our hope is in a world where there are no weeds to deal with as we cultivate the land. Our hope is in a world where there are no more serpents striking at our heel. Our hope is in a world where there is no more fear of death. Our hope is that the entire cosmos will one day be renewed and the consequences of the fall will be done away with once and for all. And if you think about all that that entails, it's staggering. And think about God's creation even now. It's incredible. I love going on a hike and finding a beautiful waterfall. Or I love hearing the sound of the waves crashing onto the beach. Or I love looking up at the stars at night and seeing their vast number. I love going on a hike and discovering some, some piece of wildlife. When we were in Colorado a couple of years, we found some mountain goats. But can you imagine what it would be like to gaze at a Grand Canyon that has been untainted by the effects of the fall? If this is what the ocean looks like now post-fall, can you picture what it will be like when the effects of sin have been removed? If a mountain goat is majestic in its habitat now, what will it be like to encounter wildlife in the new world where there's no enmity between man and beast? And all of that, of course, is to say nothing of the removal of disease and pestilence and natural disaster and death. Oh, you need to understand this. The new creation is going to be spectacular. And of course, the greatest news is that he will be there. We will be with him. Without question, the highlight of the new creation is that we will dwell with God forever. And when you begin to understand those things, you can start to see how the audacious claim of Romans 8.18 might be true. But there's a second element of our future glory that also is being pointed to here in Romans 8. And that's this, that our adoption will be finalized. Verse 23 says this, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. As Christians, we've been adopted in the family of God, adopted through the work of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, that adoption was full and complete the moment we turned to Christ in saving faith. In that moment, we were adopted fully and completely into his family. And yet there's another sense in which we're awaiting the final consummation of our adoption. And that culmination, Romans 8 would seem to suggest, is the redemption of our bodies. And again, I think this is where the cultural picture of heaven lets us down. When we think of the clouds and the harps and the eternally long church service, and in those scenarios, we we can't quite imagine what we'll be like. Will we be floating on the clouds? Will we be ghosts? Will we have bodies at all? But those questions don't make sense at all from the perspective of the New Testament. When Christ returns and makes all things new, one of the things that he will do is give us our glorious resurrected bodies, bodies that have not been touched by the effects of sin, bodies that will not decay over time, bodies that will be used to bring glory to God forever. Listen, I'm just going to tell you now, I look forward to the day when I can round third base without fear of getting hit by the hamstring sniper. I look forward to the day when sore necks and backs are a thing of the past. I look forward to the day when we don't have to worry about social distancing or wearing masks. I look forward to the day when we don't have to discuss our aches and pains around the campfire. Oh, that day is going to be good too. When the new creation comes and when our bodies are fully redeemed and when creation itself is redeemed, and most importantly, when we dwell with him forever, in that moment, we will be able to fully appreciate the truth of Romans 8.18 because it's then that we will be able to say with great sincerity, our past sufferings are nothing compared to what we're experiencing now. In the same way that a woman who gives birth can earnestly say the pain of childbirth was nothing compared to the joy of holding my child. Or in the same way that a father or mother can sincerely say the stress of emptying our bank account was nothing compared to the relief of knowing that our child got needed medical care. 
or in the same way that any of us can genuinely say that that work was hard, but in the end, the result was worth it. There will come a day in the not too distant future when we will be able to say with great joy, that suffering in our time on earth, it was hard, but it's nothing compared to the joy of what we have now. And when we're able to say that, and Christian, if you are in Christ, there is a day where you will be able to say that and say it with full sincerity. When that day comes, that will be a great day. But in the meantime, we wait. And that actually brings us to the last thing we see in this passage, and that's our current response. Verses 24 and 25. It says this, For in this hope we were saved, Now hope that is seen is no hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Listen, we don't yet know the joy of full adoption. We have not yet seen the wonder of a renewed creation. We do not yet know the blessing of being with him in eternity. But one day, for those of us who are in Christ, we will. And so in the meantime, we wait patiently. To use the language of verse 19, we wait with eager longing. And actually, the original language there in verse 19 suggests that to wait with eager longing, we crane our necks or we stand on tippy-toe. Like we're waiting for a family member at the airport after a long trip. We're waiting to see, is, is that them coming? Or the groom waiting for his bride to walk through the doors, craning his neck, waiting to see the doors open. We're waiting with eager expectation. We're, we're craning our necks, waiting for the return of Christ. We're standing on tippy-toe. And more than just waiting with eager expectation, we're beginning to build our lives now on the reality of what's to come. Hear this, if Romans 8.18 is true, then the idea that we would live for the here and now in this world is beyond short-sighted. If our future glory is going to make this world seem pale in comparison, why do we constantly live with the fear of what people on this earth think of us? Why do we hold on to money and possessions as if building up a treasure on earth is meaningful? Why do we seek power and influence as if not having them will somehow make our lives incomplete? Listen, if creation itself is broken, if we as people are broken and if suffering is inevitable, then my question is, why would we prioritize this world as if it's everything? Why would we prioritize the broken over the permanent? Why would we seek after that which is flawed instead of that which is perfect? Why would we not orient our lives around this future glory that is to come? Why would we not store treasure in heaven? Why would we not look for ways to make sure that we're living for that kingdom? Listen, the reality, is, the reality is that this world is, in fact, broken. Creation is broken. We are broken. And Christ is our only hope. The only hope you have of escaping the brokenness of this world and experiencing the joy of what is to come is to place your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, rose from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, and he will come again. And he will make things right which means if you've not yet placed your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to do so now. It's not too late. For those of you that are younger and listening, maybe you grew up in the church, and yet you've not yet turned to Christ, I would plead with you, make today the day of your salvation. This future glory that we're talking about is only possible in Christ. For those of you who are adults, maybe you've been riding on the fence for a while, am I in on this Jesus thing or not? I would plead with you, turn to Christ today. If there's anything we've been reminded over the last month and a half, it's that our life on earth is far more temporary than we used to admit. Today should be the day you turn to Christ because the future glory that awaits is only possible if you are in Jesus. And so whether you're 10 or whether you're 17 or whether you're 35 or 45 or 65 or whatever age you are, if you do not know Christ, I would plead with you, turn to Christ today for salvation. 
It's not too late. And for those of us who know Christ already, Christ's inevitable return means that we wait now with patience. We wait with eager expectation. We stand on tippy-toe. We crane our necks. And we long for the day when Jesus will make everything right. And rest assured, that day will come. And because of that, we can say with a straight face and with great confidence, our sufferings now are real. But they're nothing compared to the glory that is to come. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. What an encouragement it is that, yes, we have real suffering, but they are nothing compared to the joy that is coming. And it's coming because of what Jesus did, and it's coming because we will be with him forever. And so we pray that in the midst of our current sufferings, you would encourage us, and you would remind us that we have hope. And help us to respond currently as if we have this future hope. Help us to live with this future glory in mind. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.